Hello and welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, conversations on healthcare reform. This podcast features experts in the field talking about the most salient issues in healthcare reform. Welcome to another episode of Season 2, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. This is your host, Kate Gottung of Dayhouse Strategies, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Mary Fleming, Managing Director at Via Positiva Behavioral Health Consulting Firm. Mary is actually the former Chief of Staff for the United States Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. That's a mouthful, but Mary had a really big job there, and I'm excited to get her insights on policy reform. So I'm going to dive right in. Hi, Mary. How are you today? I'm fine, Kate, and how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being here. I'm going to jump right in. You have such an impressive career that spans the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. Can you provide some insight into your career journey and how it has informed your view on behavioral and mental health field? Um, I'd be happy to. Um, My experience began began very early in life, um, and I promise not to go through my entire life experience, (laughs) but I've worked I worked um, on uh, a unit of a state hospital not too far from you, Danvers State Hospital. And at that point, I realized that people with mental illness were vastly misunderstood in our country and um, for some reason was really taken by the lives of the people there. And I knew really at that point in time that I wanted to find a way to improve systems of care for people who were experiencing mental health issues. And if you remember then, so this was back in the 70s, we really didn't, we thought only about mental health. There was very little conversation about substance use, particularly in the treatment community. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's something that I think we've come to obviously realize later on is not distinct and is an intimate part of sort of emotional and behavioral health. But I didn't see myself as a clinician. I saw a path going forward in the planning and policy arena. Uh, I started working on projects in maternal and child health, but was continuously drawn back to mental health. And my interest became focused on how do you support people in the community? And I've been on a mission since then to find different both policy and financing levers to do that. While working in the public sector, I have focused primarily on designing systems that were client and person-centered and designed with the um, firm belief that community is the home for people and not institutions. We learned very early on that simply replicating treatment programs and approaches that individuals had experienced in a state hospital were not sufficient to help them both thrive um, in the community and be successful in the community and that we had to address the issues that all of us face as we try to find our place in the world. And that meant really beginning to expand our thinking about mental health as not only, um, as not only a set of diagnoses in the DSM, but as a societal or community problem that we had to address through what we now call social determinants of health. And we didn't talk about it at that point, but we had to look at the issues of housing Mm -hmm. and employment and social connection. And that 
field of mental health had to sort of expand its thinking. So while in the public sector, I, be, I began to get really involved in low-income housing development, job training, and vocational programs. How do you help build and integrate people into social support systems, which also involves dealing with issues of stigma? And then most importantly, from from my perspective, how do you pay for all of that? And how do you align policies and payment um, to support that approach. So I knew we had to find out more about healthcare financing and both the legal system. Because if you think about mental health systems, they've really been driven by primarily two things. One is who pays for what and how much. And then secondly, what have the courts ruled in terms of what services people get and what location do they get? And you know, I think sadly, the the um, treatment field has been less driven by evidence-based practices and the use of um, new medications um, than other medical fields. But the change in mental health was really driven by those sort of external factors. So our systems began to reflect what people would pay for. And um, and then the courts tried to um, to help move the policy needle by talking about people receiving services in least restrictive environments, really beginning to impact on the way we thought about um, the use of state institutions. So, you know, it became, became much more of sort of a social justice issue, an insurance and finance issue, and then how do you adopt and evidence-based treatment within those sort of constraints. Um, so the challenge has really been, how do you sort of begin to change that dynamic? How do you um, uh, convince payers to pay for what people need and what people want and what enriches their lives in the community and improves community health outcomes? So that began to be the next challenge. And then how do you develop a workforce that is well-trained in evidence-based practices? Um, and um, how do you align policy and payment to support those evidence-based practices um, while still recognizing that there are needs of, that people have that fall outside the traditional behavioral uh, health uh, communities? Um, and then, I think personally, I've always tried to do that by keeping in mind the needs of the individuals. Um, if we if we lose track of what people say they want, what will engage them in services and treatment, we will not be successful. Right. Um, uh, so I think in, encouraging people to engage in treatment, bringing them to the table, and making decisions about treatment, and now recognizing that the focus on overall behavioral health is critical to overall health. Absolutely, that's really interesting perspective. Let's talk about the increasing attention on the opioid epidemic. What are your thoughts on the siloing of these issues? Well, first of all, I have to say, as a family member of an individual who has experienced and blessedly lived through an opioid addiction, I have to applaud the attention and funding allocated to address prevention and treatment of opioid addiction. Although 
and sometimes people don't, don't like to hear this, I'm also acutely aware that this didn't happen until it began to affect white middle-class families and celebrities. The problems of opioid addiction are well-documented and have existed in poor minority communities, rural communities for a very long period of time. So it began to be a public health epidemic as both overdose deaths rose, but as they rose among populations that were able to influence um, the power structure in some way. So I, I, again, I'm enormously grateful for uh, the, the funding that's been allocated and I think it's, I think it's very important, but while I understand the focus on opioids, I think we have to keep in mind that alcohol is still the number one substance of abuse. Meth is emerging once again as a major concern and overdose deaths are increasing um, from both meth and from cocaine. While there's been a slight decline in um, overdose deaths from opioids. So I think my concern and I, is that much of the federal funding now is perhaps too restrictive and that what we need to be looking at is how to build prevention and treatment systems that can address the needs of all persons. So we need a treatment system that can deal with the next um, crisis that comes, be it meth, be it cocaine, be it a drug that we have no idea exists. Um, the other important issue is that substance use problems really occur in isolation from mental health issues and um, having integrated systems that can address an individual's total needs is critical to their long-term recovery from both their substance use and their mental health issues. So um, again, to the extent that this focus on opioids leads to better integration between substance use and mental health, um, I could not applaud it enough. And, and in my work with states and providers, hope that, that that's what we achieve, um, is really understanding the, the linkage between those two and that a, a treatment program has to be able to um, have a strong clinical framework and a clinical framework for addressing the substance use needs and the mental health needs. Um, and again, I, I really want to stress that we cannot repeat our past mistakes um, of allowing funding to drive the system design and service delivery so much that we lose sight of the needs of all individuals. So it needs, we need a big tent in terms of having lots of uh, treatment alternatives, being accepting of all of different kinds of treatment alternatives, um, and finding ways that we um, allow people to navigate those um, those choices as they seek their own uh, recovery. We also have to find ways to engage people in services. A few people, we understand access services, and admittedly and clearly, some of that is a lack of services in many areas of the country, particularly rural areas. Um, but it's also true that many people don't like or find the services that they are offered. And we have to find creative ways to get people in the front door and keep them there. Uh, I, we did an analysis of um, the median number of visits that 
people took advantage of for mental health and substance use services, and that was one. Um, people went in one time, um, and that really says a lot about what was that first experience like for them? What did they not get that they were looking for? Um, and I think um, too often we're very prescriptive of what is supposed to happen when somebody comes through that front door, when in fact I would challenge street providers to understand that what they have to do is figure out what will help that person who comes through that front door and how do they connect it with them where they are. Back around to the opioid epidemic and the attention to it, again, I would hope that there's sufficient flexibility in the funding that allows us to test out some of those ways to engage people in treatment. Are there times that people are more, more open to it? Um, you know, we can have all the treatment in the world, but if people don't use it, it doesn't really help them very much. So um, I think that's one of the great challenges facing us uh, going forward. Thank you, that's really insightful. You mentioned the importance of integration. In your opinion, how can we make meaningful strides toward the integration of mental, substance use, and behavioral health, along with physical health? What needs to change and what progress have we made? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we have to first understand the financial and human cost of failing to integrate mental health and substance use, and then behavioral health and physical health. Um, we know that individuals with serious mental illness die on average several years earlier than those without serious mental illness, and the range is um, disputed a little bit, but it's somewhere between 14 to 25 years earlier than people without serious mental illness. Sim similar data on deaths from alcohol abuse is not as readily available, but it's quite likely to be as high as or higher given the enormous physical toll that alcohol takes on a person's body. And the, the sort of financial and opportunity cost of those uh, diseases is staggering. So it's absolutely necessary to improve the overall quality of life in the country and to really have an impact on saving dollars or more efficiently using dollars in our healthcare systems. Now, I think, Kate, that we've been a lot more successful on policy changes. So the ACA, health homes, accountable care organizations have all proven to be models that offer great potential for integrating physical health and behavioral health. But unfortunately, practice has not kept up with those policy changes or policy initiatives. Care integration has been slow. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. In general, programs and systems adapt slowly to change and regulatory structures, um, the rules and regulations and financial uh, systems, um, data collection systems react even more slowly. I think quite frankly that many providers fear a loss of jobs um, or funding or a loss of territory if there's um, much integration of care, I don't know that that would happen. Um, again, it's a pretty big tent and we have such huge workforce problems, it's hard for me to imagine that that would be the case. But I think that there is a, a, a fear of change that plays into that. 
And then funding streams and data systems are not aligned to support integrated care. So it's very hard to, um, within hospital systems, um, and then in terms of Medicaid, Medicare reporting systems, to um, be able to account for and pay for dollars across the spectrum. And then back to the workforce issues, staff are not really sufficiently cross-trained. Um, so the physicians receive very little training in mental health and substance use. Um, and uh, the same will be for nursing uh, students. So there is really sort of an inherent lack of capacity in, in some of the systems. Um, and then there's, I think, you know, as many states have had carve-outs of their managed behavioral health care, um, some provide those services part of a more integrated model, some carve it out. I think there's a real fear that very hard-fought-for gains in mental health and substance use funding will be lost if those funds are integrated within a health care um, managed care insurance model. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that's really based on very old history, but there's also a real fear of that because there have been really, in some states, tremendous gains made in providing community-based services as a result of that. So there are, there are really some just built-in financial disincentives for providers. And then I think, there, the lastly, there's still a stigma around both the person who has a mental health or substance use issue and the individuals who treat those individuals. So in my experience, I've found that physician practices or hospital systems are more than willing to do care integration as relates to people with depression, let's say, or children with ADHD. Um, But when you begin to talk about um, providing services to people with um, uh, schizophrenia of some sort or severe uh, bipolar disorder or children with um, severe forms of autism. Um, provider, healthcare providers are much less willing to take on both the healthcare and the behavioral health needs of those individuals. So I think the challenge for us as a field is to figure out for for which group of people is integrated behavioral health care in the healthcare care system, um, the model we want to use. And then are there other individuals that we want to, to use the behavioral health care provider system as the primary health care system? So we typically think about integrating behavioral health into healthcare, but there may be a group of people who would want to receive their healthcare from their behavioral health provider and for whom that's most appropriate. So are there a group of people that we look to provide integrated care in the behavioral health system? And I think that's a challenge in front of us today also. Um, So does behavioral health or psychiatry and for those individuals become a really subspecialty within healthcare that treats holistically a group, a group of people. So I think those are 
some of the issues. So I think there's been progress in pockets around the country, but I think systemically we still have a long ways to go about mental health needs a lot more than they used to. And now I hope that in doing so, it doesn't become a negative conversation um, about danger and restricting them and, and that sort of thing, because that really is not reflective of the of the population. Agree. You've given us so much to think about in terms of problems and solutions. If you could boil it all down, though, I would wonder what your top five policy reform priorities would be regarding mental health. Well, thanks for that question. I I, I actually had thought about it before before, and there there are lots of priorities, but I. If I had to pick five, I would say a continued focus on integration and methodically addressing the barriers, including funding approaches, workforce training, developing um, data systems. So I, continuing this focus on integration and identifying um, what does that really mean in terms of working with a population as diverse as those individuals that experience mental health and substance use problems. So are there some other models out there? The second priority I would say is developing a value-based case for behavioral health services. I think we have to embrace the use of outcome measures to demonstrate the value of the services in both clinical terms, quality of life, improvements to society, and then savings in healthcare and social services. So it's not only the savings to the healthcare insurers or employers, but the savings to our social service costs. And that would be jail and police and family services, all of those costs. So uh, behavioral health providers, I think, have been sort of slow to the table um, about using outcome measures. And I think we're going to have to take a quantum leap in the next few years um, to overcome that fear and really begin to make a case for the value of services. So my third issue would be understanding the impact technology can have on service delivery. There are all sorts of new products emerging that can help remove the barriers between providers and clients or between individuals and treatment. So we have telehealth. There's lots of self-care apps that are cognitive-based, um, or application-based therapies like CBT or uh, perhaps like a self-recovery approach. Um, there are other approaches to use uh, receiving treatment via an app. Um, I think we're going to have to figure out where do those fit into the healthcare landscape um, and how do we adapt our treatment systems to those. Um, so I think that's going to be really important because technology is always going to be um, ahead of the treatment field in that sense. Um, the fourth area what I think is really important is to develop an informed, uh, trauma-informed systems of care. And I mean that throughout the healthcare system. People who are experiencing trauma are at higher risk for behavioral health um, problems, both mental health and substance use, and also certain health care problems. Um, so we really need to have trauma-informed health care systems that are safe for people wherever they enter that system. And I think that will help us 
to both engage people in treatment um, successfully and reach populations that perhaps we've not been able to reach before or to reach them earlier, which is really important. And then the last issue is workforce development. Um, We simply don't have enough staff. Um, And as I talk to folks around the country who are trying to address the substance use crisis, um, there really are just not staff that are available to them. So I think some of that's going to involve revamping some of our professional training programs. Um, I think it's going to be involved increasing our use of peers, recovery coaches, recovery support staff, um, but really trying to um, develop a workforce that has strong competencies in mental health and substance use. So those are, I think, five big challenges that we really have to to, um, address. Absolutely. Those are all fantastic. And um, you've just given us so much to think about. And we really appreciate you uh, giving us your time and insights. And thank you so much, Mary. Thank you for the opportunity, Kate. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. Day Health Strategies is a Boston-based, mission-driven healthcare consulting firm specializing in providing timely and effective solutions to complex problems in healthcare. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at www.dayhealthstrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at DayHealthStrat. Just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Day Health Strategies. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Our producer and host is Emily George. Editing is done by Kate Gautung. Special thanks to Purple Planet for the use of their songs.